Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 45, He is Coming with the Clouds. And in this episode, we are going to continue our look at the introductory few verses in the book of Revelation, but we're going to make a slight shift. And we're going to shift by combining the ideas that Jesus has come to deal with individual people, but that Jesus' presence, as demonstrated through the kingdom of God, also deals with things like communities, groups, and nations. And based upon looking at Revelation 1-7, we're going to begin to see that Jesus deals with us both individually as well as nationally. And this is the message of the Bible from beginning to end, although it is often missed when many people read the Bible through particular lenses. And so I'm going to do my best in this episode to help us see this truth through both lenses and how they both actually fit quite beautifully together as opposed to being separated. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 1-7 for you. And as again, as usual, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible, I'll be making a lot of references to this verse and you're welcome to join me. I'll be reading from the ESV. Here's what it says in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds... And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, Revelation 1-7, this verse that I just read, is all about Jesus. And it's about people's responses toward Jesus. And while last week's episode focused on how Jesus deals with us personally, this week we'll begin looking at how Jesus deals with things on a national scale, how he deals with things publicly, how he and his kingdom intersect publicly with the kingdoms of this world, how Jesus, as a king of a kingdom himself, handles matters politically, addressing nations as well as individuals. And so a good question to ask is, what is Jesus's stance toward the kingdoms of this world? How does he view them? And how does he expect his followers to remain faithful to him and his kingdom when they find themselves in the middle of other kingdoms, particularly ones that see themselves as worthy of godlike status and honor? In other words, how does the kingdom of God intersect with the kingdoms of this world? Now, for quite a while, Certain strands of Christianity have emphasized the belief that Jesus, and therefore one's belief in Jesus, deals merely with matters in the heart, and that salvation deals with saving people from their sins from an eternal point of view, concerning itself primarily with where you go when you die, and therefore it doesn't have that much to say about public life now outside of individual believers in Jesus voting on matters they believe are important to God. And voting or running for office have been about as far into the realm of public as many people feel comfortable going in the name of Jesus. After all, according to this view, Jesus deals with matters in the heart. And in the heart has been believed to be primarily private. Now, I want to point out that Jesus absolutely deals 
with matters in the heart. I, I, I couldn't agree more. But he does so in order to invite everyone into something new, something better, a new and better life. And it is also true that salvation deals with saving people from their sins from an eternal perspective. It's just that the sins we most need saved from are the ones that are perfectly at home in the kingdoms of this world. They are the very ones that do not cause the lives of people made in the image of God to flourish. They are self-centered and therefore destructive. And so when Jesus offers eternal life to those who place their faith in him, he's not primarily talking about where you go when you die. What he's saying is that the new life one receives from him, one's entrance into his kingdom, begins immediately. And since it is a life rooted in Jesus, in him was life, John 1, 4 tells us, and the fact that Jesus has conquered both sin and death, then the new life he grants will survive even death. Hence, it is eternal. It is a life that has no end. So no, Jesus is not primarily concerned with where you go when you die. For the simple fact that one can be concerned with where I go when I die and still remain untouched and unaffected by the new life Jesus has come to bring him now. Instead, what Jesus is primarily concerned with is which kingdom are you a citizen of? And is the king of that kingdom eager for the flourishing not only of your life, but of the entire world? You see, worldly kingdoms tend not to concern themselves with those outside their tribe. Life is great in such a kingdom if you are on the inside. And this is exactly what kingdoms of the world do. They take sides. You're in versus you're out. Us versus them. These kingdoms promise flourishing, but only for their own members. And the kingdom of God brought in by Jesus challenges that belief both on an individual as well as on a national scale. In fact, this is what the entire Old Testament book of Daniel is all about. How to live faithfully as members of God's kingdom in the midst of a kingdom that has exalted itself to godlike status and honor. To give you a bit of the background, in 586 BC, after warning his own people for generations that he would judge their idolatry and injustice unless they repented and turned back to him, God allowed the rapidly expanding empire of Babylon to overtake Judah, carry off many of their best people into captivity, set Jerusalem on fire, and destroy their temple. The people had chosen to ignore the prophet's messages. They had hardened their hearts and plugged their ears. They would not listen. And so they were hauled into exile by the Babylonians. One of those taken into captivity was a young man named Daniel. And the book of Daniel is filled with many of his life experiences, dreams and visions, known often throughout the book as mysteries. 
national idolatry, God supplying interpretations of those dreams and visions, who is or isn't ruling well, faithfully bearing witness to God and his kingdom, and lots of references to images and image bearing. In other words, the book of Daniel carries on many of the themes that the Bible as a whole emphasizes, as well as many that we've already explored so far in this podcast. Chapter 1 of Daniel begins with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, issuing an order to have the best of the people of Israel, those he had just taken captive, all those skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Daniel 1.4 He wanted these men to be trained in the ways of Babylon so that they could serve King Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom. Among those chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Many of you may know these last three by their Babylonian given names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the book of Daniel records all of their experiences, their attempts as faithful representatives of God's people at living out their identity as citizens of his kingdom while the culture around them is immersed in the kingdoms of this world. Now, we will refer back to the book of Daniel often throughout our Revelation series. But for now, we'll skip ahead to chapter 7. The phrase, he is coming with the clouds in Revelation 1-7 is a reference to Daniel 7-13. And it is God's answer to the troubles that ensue when our world is continually dominated by kingdoms. Babylon's kingdom or others, and their competing visions for what it means to rule well. God answered, God's answer comes in a vision Daniel has, where, according to verses 2 and 3 of Daniel 7, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. Now, these beasts go on to wreak havoc on the world, and one beast in particular is terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had horns, one of which had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as Daniel continued to look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now, thrones, fire, worship, courts in judgment and books all themes that Revelation will bring to our attention time and time again. But Daniel's vision continues. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, 11 to 14. Now, tucked right away in the middle of this passage is one like a son of man, a ruler of some kind who will ascend on the clouds to the ancient of days, a reference to the eternal God himself on his throne. And this son of man will receive a kingdom that will never end. Now, remember, Daniel receives this vision as God's response, God's answer to the rampant injustice of these beasts, one of which is described as a lion, which Jeremiah uses in chapter 50 of his book to describe the character of Babylon. So one of the beasts being described in Daniel's vision is the very kingdom Daniel currently finds himself living in. Now, beasts is a concept many people are familiar with as readers of Revelation. The book has lots to say about beasts. But all we know at this point is that a significant figure of some kind, a son of man, will receive a kingdom in contrast to these beastly kingdoms, and that he will defeat them and set up his eternal kingdom. Now, how he will do so has not yet been explained to us. But arriving at the answer to the how is one of the main points of the book of Revelation. Remember, we are still in the introductory section to the book. And if we go back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation for just a moment, we will see something rather illuminating. In Revelation 1.1, we read, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, this phrase, the things that must soon take place, is actually not original to the book of Revelation. It first shows up, of all places, in Daniel chapter 2, in a conversation Daniel has with King Nebuchadnezzar regarding a dream King Nebuchadnezzar has that he wants someone to interpret for him. Three times Daniel tells the king that his vision deals with what will be in the latter days, or what is to be, or what shall be after this. Now, for John to open the book of Revelation by referring to the things that must soon take place, he's cluing us in to the fact that he sees his own time and the things he is now discussing as Daniel's latter-day prophecies. Latter days, last days, end times, they all mean the same thing. And we are in the last days right now. Additionally, some translations of these three verses in Daniel 2, which are typically translated in the latter days, have also been translated after these things. It's a way of looking forward, of describing something that is yet future to one's current time. Now, interestingly enough, John uses this exact language in Revelation 1.19. What must take place after this? Now, some interpreters take this to mean yet future to John's time. 
Hence the belief that much of the book of Revelation takes place in the future. With the additional suggestion, in the future, even for us. But if John tells us that his time is Daniel's latter days, and the phrase after these things can be used interchangeably with in the latter days, then John's use of what must take place after this in verse 19 isn't referring to his future. It's referring to Daniel's future, which John tells us has now arrived. Daniel's future is our present. And one of the clearest ways we know this is the case is the fact that in Daniel 2, again, which has Daniel interpreting a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar, God is praised twice as being the revealer of mysteries. In this case, of course, mysteries is strange dreams. And the basic phrase, what must take place in the latter days, occurs at the beginning and at the end of Daniel's God-given interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Similarly, in Revelation chapter 1, the Son of Man figure begins his interpretation of John's initial vision by revealing the mystery of the lampstand, which he identifies for us in verse 20 of chapter 1 as the churches. The churches are the lampstands. And the church will prove to be a vital part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Redemption that was brought about by the Son of Man himself. Now, this is why in a book like Ephesians, for example, we read Paul saying things like, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 3. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Ephesians, this section might actually be one of the most unfamiliar because it almost sounds like Paul's just rambling on, but he's grasping this idea of mystery. And he picks up a similar theme in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, there is a mystery inherent in the churches by, the, by way of the church's union with Christ, a mystery that will be more fully revealed and explained the more we go through the book of Revelation. For a brief hint of how this mystery works, you may want to re-listen to episode 38, filling up what is lacking. As Colossians 1.27 and its reference to this mystery, which is Christ in you, appears in the same paragraph 
as Paul explaining that in his flesh, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. If you've ever wondered what in the world Paul means there, and you haven't yet listened to episode 38, you may want to do so. Now, verse 7 continues by emphasizing the universal arrival of this Son of Man. He is coming with the clouds. And his arrival will demand a response from literally everyone. Here's how the verse concludes. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, the words, even those who pierced him, are drawn from Zechariah chapter 12. And all those who see him will wail, or in other words, they will mourn on account of him. In other words, they will mourn in some sense because of Jesus. And so in John 19, 37, at the moment of Jesus' death, John tells us that the scriptures were fulfilled in the death of Jesus, for they say, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Quoting again this same passage from Zechariah chapter 12. So even the people who pierced him, at the very least, refers back to those responsible for Jesus' death. And yet, just what these people will be thinking about when they look on him whom they have pierced is not directly answered in Revelation 1-7. Nor are we given much insight into the attitude being described when all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Is this a good wailing or a bad one? Is this describing people who will feel bad for what they've done to Jesus? Or are these people wailing and mourning for a different reason? Again, in Revelation 1-7, we are not explicitly told. All we know is that all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Again, in other words, because of Jesus, everyone will mourn. Something about who Jesus is will bring about a universal response. Now, some will wail or mourn in the hopes that Jesus will rescue them. Matthew 5.4 spells this out for us. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the Beatitudes that Jesus is describing in Matthew 5, these people mourn as a result of their poverty of spirit. The very first Beatitude that comes immediately before the one about mourning. They mourn over the lack of justice in the world. They mourn because even their own lives are filled with the very things that oppose God and his kingdom. And they want to be rid of them. They want Jesus to free them. It is to this type of mourner that God promises to wipe away every tear from their eyes when he brings the new heaven and the new earth described in Revelation 21. It's to these mourners that he promises, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And yet if you and I take a look at Revelation 18, we actually see a different kind of mourning going on. People of all walks of life are wailing and weeping over the destruction of Babylon, the great city. Let me give you a few examples. Babylon itself, that great city that made a name for itself, that exalted itself as a god in this world, that brought peace to the world through war, brought salvation through violence, and emphasized its own might as proof that its ways were right. Yeah, that Babylon, that symbol for all earthly kingdoms, is spoken about in Revelation 18, 7 to 8, this way. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. For in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now, did you catch the repeated word, mourning? It's used intentionally here. For the mindset of Babylon is one that sees itself in such an exalted position, one of prominence and grandeur, that it insists that it shall never see mourning. It will never see anything about itself as in the wrong or in need of correction. And because it doesn't, her plagues will come in a single day, God says. In other words, her judgment will certainly come. It will be swift and it will be deserved. And remember, it was in response to the oppression caused by this Babylon, by the way, that the Son of Man received a kingdom that would never end. It was this Babylon the one that embodied the character of the beast, yes, this Babylon that the Son of Man destroyed when he was exalted on his throne. And so Revelation 18 continues by describing the kinds of people on earth who will mourn right alongside Babylon when they see her greatness come to an end. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Verses 17 through 19, And all shipmasters and seafaring men Sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. Now, Revelation 1-7 tells us that all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And what this means is that Jesus' very presence all that he stands for and all that he stands against will demand a response from everyone. 
Those who find themselves wishing for the things Jesus is for will mourn that there isn't more of this already on the earth, that there is not more of this already present in their own hearts. This is the Matthew 5.4 kind of mourning. And then all those who find themselves upset over the things Jesus is against will experience the Revelation 18 kind of mourning. But make no mistake, everyone will mourn in one way or the other. The only question is, which kind of mourner will you be? Which kind of mourner will your nation be? For you see, Jesus is the judger of hearts. And even at the end of Matthew chapter 25, it is Jesus who tells the sheep that they are sheep and the goats that they are goats. You see, on that day, he will reveal hearts. He will uncover the truth. And so he can say, as he does in Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You see, the private and the public both matter. And for some, those privately kept secrets, those things they were certain no one knew about, those things will be brought into the light unless we willingly bring them into the light ourselves now. And this is the invitation of the gospel. It is the statement that the light has come into the world, but that men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. But Jesus reminds us in that same paragraph that he did not come into the world to condemn the world. He doesn't come into the dark places to shine the light of his truth on them in order to make people squirm, feel guilty, and run and hide. He shines the light of his truth into the dark places of our world, inviting people to come out of the darkness into the light. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eyes of Jesus. And these eyes of his, we will have a lot more to say in future weeks as we continue to walk through the book of Revelation. So you see, nations will find on that day that some of their deepest held ideals will not stand up under the judging eye of Jesus. Individuals will find that the things that have most gripped their hearts will cause them to mourn when some of those very things are shown to be unfit for the kingdom of God. But our greatest hope today is that Jesus has invited us into his kingdom. He doesn't threaten us. He doesn't force us. He doesn't coerce us. He invites us. He invites us into something full of more life than anything we could ever come up with on our own. And so a very fitting question to conclude this episode with would be to ask, where is your heart?
Do the things that you hear Jesus speaking to, to his church and to the religious people, the things that he is critiquing, do you see those things in your own heart and are you willing and able and and prepared to come into the light with those things? His invitation to the world is simply saying these things will happen eventually. All truth will be brought into the light. All things that are hidden will be revealed. He does not want that to happen without our permission. So he is simply inviting us to find ourselves cleaned and purified now. What kind of mourner are you? What kind of mourner is your church? What kind of mourner is our country? And are we upset over the right kinds of things? Or do we get sidetracked into making enemies and thinking that those who do not agree with us in every way simply need to await their judgment? Again, we're going to unpack more of these themes as we go, but getting to the root issue and our stance toward the kingdoms of this world need to embody more like those of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as I shared, we will reference back to the book of Daniel a number of times because they are unbelievably illuminating to teach us what faithfulness to the kingdom of God looks like in the middle of the kingdom of Babylon. And so that's all the time that I'm going to take for this week's episode. Again, I'm very thankful for those of you that are tuning in. Please uh, leave me a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts if you are able to get on there and and to do that. Thank you so much for those who are continuing to support this podcast on a monthly basis. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to interact with you. You can follow me at the Unbinding the Bible podcast on Instagram. And you can also email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Have a great week.